This is the conclusion of a workshop we did for you a few months ago. Just in case somebody is here today who wasn't there then, this is a letter written by Mama Ghazali in response to a letter written by one of his students. That student was an alim of deen, was a young man who had recently graduated from studying tafsir, hadith, fiqh, usul, and in that time, that would have included logic and philosophy and astronomy and mathematics, which was considered the rational sciences of that time, as well as history and literature, which were basically the humanities and liberal arts of that time. All right, in fact, if I want to strictly say it would have been history, literature, philosophy, rhetoric, and humanities and liberal arts, and logic, mathematics, and astronomy. That would have been the sciences of that time. Now, when that person graduated from all of these studies, he had also accepted Imam Ghazali as a sheikh. Now, what that means is about is what's going to come right now, where we resume the letter. Sheikh means he had taken Imam Ghazali as his guide and instructor and tutor and coach on his journey to become closer to Allah on how now to practice what a person has learned, how to have taqwa and haya in a person's heart. Now, having taken Imam Ghazali as a sheikh, so then he wrote him a letter. But dear Shaykh, these are some questions that I have and I need some advice from you and I need some dua for you and I need to know what am I supposed to do. So in the first part of the text that was covered up till now, those of you who are here you might recall that Imam Ghazali first advised him that given that you have studied so much of the deen, then the first question is why do you even need an advice from me? Sufficient advice is in the Quran and the Hadith that you studied. Second, then he told him that, okay, but I will highlight some particular hadith for you that you should make them the focus of your journey in practice. All right, and those hadith focused on the importance of amal and a'mal. That to know alone is not sufficient, but a person must know and then a person must practice and live and become the embodiment of that knowledge. And Imam Ghazali spent several pages on this and explaining to his students the importance of amal. Then, within the realm of Amal, the first thing that Imam Ghazali pointed was the virtue of Ibadah, and particularly the extra-optional night prayer known as Tahajjan Qiyamul Layl Salatul Layl, and then a few pages were spent on that. All right? Then, after having advised him from the hadith of the Prophet then Imam Ghazali related a story, and that is the end which you can see here, uh, of Shafiq al-Balkhir Imam Hatim al-Asam. And this was basically, again, a sheikh and a student. And one day the student went to a sheikh and said that, Oh, sheikh, uh, after spending so many years in your company, I learned eight, principally speaking, I learned eight useful lessons. And the sheikh said, Okay, tell me what they are. And then the student then enumerated all of those eight lessons. And each one he took a verse from Quran. And then he explained how spending time with the sheikh and actually trying and making effort on this path to practice deen enabled him to understand that verse and apply that verse in his whole life. And then that, what, that is the last thing up to where we reach today with the discussion of those eight lessons. Now Imam Ghazali continues further. So Ayyuhal Walad, so this is the way Imam Ghazali always refers to his students here. Walad in Arabic when it's used for somebody who is not your biological son is what we would call in English terms of endearment. It would be like you would say in Urdu, e mere or in English they translate it sometimes as my dear beloved son. 
No doubt, it should also be. It is also used as a term of endearment for one's biological son. But you can understand if Ali Merche calls a student my son, and the person is not their son, so it's a very emotionally intense way to address somebody to say that you are so dear to me and so close to me and so honored to me as my own son. All right. Desko Urdu me kate ruhani beta. All right. To ayu halbalat, oh my dear and beloved son. You have understood from these two incidents and stories that he had mentioned that you don't need, you don't need any additional learning. Literally the Arabic is You don't need to increase your knowledge. You know enough now. Having studied for so many years, it's all again about practice. All right? And then he says, and now what you have to do, and he explains to them again, I will say a little bit there to you. I will now explain to you and make clear that which is incumbent on the Salik on Sabilul Haq. So Salik means a person who is a traveler. Another word for this in Arabic, the noun for this is Saluk, and Salik is the active participle, the subject. Saluk means a path. Salik is the traveler on that path. So it means the path of practice, the path of amal, the path of ikhlas, the path of sincerity, the path of mahabba, the path of love for Allah subhanahu ta'ala, the path of ubudiyah, the path of submission and servitude to Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So what does a person need? So those of you who were here last time, you may remember that every now and then we change the translation um, because the translator was not a Muslim. And so sometimes, although the Arabic was excellent, but he may not be able to understand the context of certain terms. So the most telling example I've given of you that last time was if you see here the English word master. So it's a principle of translation that if ever you use a word in English for a word in Arabic, you cannot use the same word in English for a different word in Arabic. Word in Arabic, Malik, like Malik Yomindin. Word in English as a translation of Malik is master. Once you use the word master as a translation for Malik, you cannot use the word master as translation for another word. So listen to the Arabic and you will understand the word. Alright? So Sheikh, Murshid, and Murabbi. These were actually Arabic words. None of these words means master. Sheikh, for present audience, there's no need to even translate that. Sheikh means Sheikh, I've already explained to you, instructor, tutor, guide, coach on the spiritual path. Murshid comes from Rushd and Irshad. Murshid will be guide, and he's translated that as uh, guide, if I remember correctly, yes. Murabbi is more than just instructor. Murabbi is the person who does your tarbiyya. So he's saying that if a person wants to pursue this path to become close to Allah Sponsor, they need a Sheikh, they need a person who is a Sheikh slash Murshid slash Murabbi. Why? So that that person can take out all the negative aspects and negative character traits in that Salih by means of his tarbiyah. Okay? So instruction again here is tarbiyah. So to rid him of their bad character traits, the word is akhlaq is sayyah, through their tarbiyah. And in their place to inculcate in that Salih and student the akhlaq hasana the noble and virtuous attributes. And very interestingly, this is something, this is a concept that goes back to the philosophers. And basically Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, this is what they would talk about, virtue. 
and the concept of the virtuous guide and the concept of the guide bringing the student to virtue. Now they were living in a time they didn't have access to deen, they didn't have wahi, they didn't have nabuwa. So they were going to do that through philosophy, right? In our deen we try the same way to bring about virtue in people and to create virtuous individuals, but we have deen. So we do that through the Quran and the Sunnah of the Vietrim Sunnah is the first thing that he explains that the seeker needs a shaykh. Second, he explains what the function of the shaykh is. Third, now he's going to explain what is tarbiyah. What is the meaning of tarbiyah? Tarbiyah means that the instructor, and he's going to give an example of this, which is an example that was used in the Arabic tradition and then in the Persian tradition, and is now used also in the Urdu tradition. He gives the likeness of the gardener, right? Urdu makate mali. He said farmer, but it really means gardener, all right? The likeness of the gardener who uproots thorn bushes and removes weeds from the midst of the crops so that his plants are in a proper condition and his yield is brought to perfection. This is one of the classical examples in this tradition. So you have two types of plants, one that has a gardener and one that doesn't have a gardener. The one that doesn't have a gardener has the same seed of iman. This one also has the same seed of iman. But the one that doesn't have a gardener doesn't have anybody. Now one example is this, that trimming the weeds and protecting it, to use more modern examples, to spray pesticides on it to protect it from insects, to cut the rotted leaf, to protect the rot from spreading in the plant. Alright? So those are the things that the gardener does. And this is all being used as what? Not for ibadah or salah. It's talking about akhlaq. It's talking about virtue, morals, characters, sifat. So sifat come out in a person when they're groomed. And this used to be a word that traditional Europe used to have grooming and finishing schools for their princes. Why? The education was something else, that was their talim. And then they were sent for tarbiyah, for grooming and finishing. A similar concept you had here once upon a time for women in home economics college. Hmm? Grooming and finishing. It means it requires a process, a training, a method. It requires a teacher, an instructor, a guide to bring out that virtue in a person. Alright? وَلَعْبُدَّمْ لِسَّالَكِ مِنْ شَيْخٍ يُؤَدِّبُهُ وَيُرْشِدُهُ إِذَا سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى And it is absolutely indispensable for a salak, a seeker on this path, to have a shaykh who does now, he says another word, ta'deeb. One is tarbiyah, one is ta'deeb. يُؤَدِّبُهُ means to teach them adab, to inculcate adab in them. And to guide them on the path that leads to the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa Now he says that look, in the first instance, Allah subhanahu wa sent down for his creatures, servants and slaves, Rasulan lil irshadi illa sabilahi, a messenger, yani Nabi Kareem sallallahu alayhi sallam, to guide them and show them the path that leads to his pleasure and good. Then, after Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi passed away from this world, and see the Arabic word is irtahala, and if you have better Urdu, it's from Rihlat, right? And so that this was an adab in the Arabic tradition not to use the word mouth. It doesn't mean that they deny. Obviously, the Vehicle some died. Every human being dies. But the more polite expression, like in Urdu sometimes they say, right? That's actually Urdu trying to capture the original adab from the Arabic tradition. They would use the word Rihla, that he departed from this world. So they would rather, in English that's how we would phrase it, when the Prophet departed from this world, rather than saying that he died, right? Now some people they may not understand, they say for us died and departed is the same thing. But then fine, then for you there is no difference in other. But for those who feel 
the nuance and the difference, they still prefer to use that term. All right. Uh, again, because the translators cannot understand that this is an issue of other he just translated as died. Right? Again, when you use died in English for the Arabic word mot, you cannot use the English word died for irtihal or rehla. All right. Now, I won't do any more because it's not a class in Arabic translation. And but just to give you an idea, uh, the po- I did this only to show you that this is why sometimes people say that why are the ulama always so cautious about reading texts by non-Muslims? It's not because they get it wrong, but because they don't get it entirely right. All right, uh, and that, that's a problem. But that's our own failure uh, that Muslims who know English don't translate these texts. So. For Imam Ghazali, who had to translate his text, was anonymous Tobias Meyer, who also did his PhD from Oxford. Right? So that's our own fault. Uh, you will not find a Christian Latin text being translated by anybody other than well-educated scholastic theologians uh, versed in Christianity. They won't leave it to some random Pakistani Muslim to translate a Christian theological sense. This is the state of our Ummah, that we leave our great books and our classics to be translated by people who are not even from our own tradition. All right? Take it. Enough said about that. Now, so when the Bihakarim Sallallahu parted departed from this world, he left in his place Khulafa. Right? Now Khulafa, this is referring to number one, Khulafa al-Shudun, Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Uthman, Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu ta'ala anhu al-Jma'in. And also Khulafa means all of the Sahabikam. Because you see, whenever a person accepted Islam from the Tabin, who did the Tirbiya now? Who did their tabir? Who was their guide? Was the whichever sahabi who they met? So the sahaba were the ones who taught and trained them akhlaq. The sahaba were the ones who taught the tabi'in how to practice on deen. So what Imam al-Ghazali is suggesting here, and so there's a lot of meaning in these sentences, and the translation just captures the word-for-word translation. What he's saying is that there is now a succession. There's a continuity. That Sahaba will do the Tarbiya of Tabi'in, the Tabi'in will do Tarbiya of the Tabai Tabi'in, Tabai Tabi'in will do Tarbiya of the next generation, and this will continue. That doesn't mean nobody is a prophet, a Shaykh is not a prophet. But in the same sense, for example, a Mufti is not a prophet. But Sahaba Ikram, they learned the Messiah of prayer from the Prophet. A person today is going to learn from an Alim or from a Mufti. Alright? So that function of Talim and the function of Tarbiya continues in the Ummah. Alright? Uh, so now, then Imam Ghazali is going to what is the condition and criteria for a shaykh who is actually capable of doing Islam or who is capable of doing tarbiya uh, and acting in Nehabat uh, for Nabi Akari and the Prophet? But Sahabi Kram, they learned the Messiah so, of number one. Number one. number one is that the person must have knowledge of deen. Because if you don't know the map, the person today is going to learn from an alim somebody on the map. All right. So the Quran and Sunnah are the map. Just like sometimes when you drive these fancy cars, there's a navigation system. That the navigation system is what it isn't. The map already exists, but that is some computerized voice guiding you along the map. If the map is not downloaded into that navigation system, it can never guide you. All right. So the shaykh has to be an alim of the Qur'an and Sunnah. If he doesn't know the map, how can he guide you on the map? So that's the first condition. However, the Imam Ghazali makes it clear, generally, and also specifically to a student, because the student is also an alim, this is also shaykh now. So he makes it clear to him that, however, 
Not every single person. Not every single alim is worthy of being the representative of the Prophet Sahaba, Tabin, Tabin in this succession of the leader. So then he says it okay. So now I will clearly explain to you several more signs, several more signs and characteristics. Generally speaking, all right, generally speaking, so that not any and everyone can lay claim to them being a guide. All right. So this is, you know, like this is one of the duties and roles and functions of the ulama, that the ulama have to explain to us, right? Like you have ulama will tell you which are the truly valid Islamic banks and which aren't. So that we have to look to the guidance of ulama and they will tell us what are the valid criteria for a person being a shaykh and a guide on the spiritual path. So number one was alim. Number two, my yu'ridhu an hubbid dunya wa hubbil Number one, that they should be averse to materialistic love. They cannot be a worldly person. They cannot be a person who is in love with the dunya and infatuated with the dunya. Because then how can they guide you when they're not guided yet themselves? They're supposed to guide you away from love of dunya and towards love of Allah Ta'ala, away from love of dunya, towards love of akhirah. If themselves they're stuck in love for dunya, then how can they guide you out of it? Number three, means love for fame, repute, reputation, honor, right? Acclamation, right? So they can't be a person like that because then there's a danger that actually they're just guiding you because they want to become more famous, all right? So three things so far. Number four, that the person themselves must have themselves followed a shaykh and that shaykh should have had basira, should have had some inner wisdom and perception. And that shaykh himself should have followed a shaykh, going back to what is called the salsul, sometimes known as silsala, to a continuous and unbroken chain of transmission, leading back to Sayyidina Rasulullah That's the fourth condition. Fifth condition is that the shaykh is themselves continuing to train their own selves through practicing what? That they eat less, and they speak less, and they sleep less. Alright? No doubt, there are some ulama and mashayikh who are a bit heavyweight, and if that is due to medical obesity or some other factor, that's, or they're, well, I don't know, you guys have a body mass index and bone width and other things, no problem, not those made human beings in all shapes and sizes. It's not just like only a skinny person can be a shaykh. But if they're fond of eating and they overeat and due to that they have, then that's a little bit of a problem, right? Because they're <laughs> indulging and at the same time they're trying to get you out of the indulgences from the world, okay? So, killat al-akil, less eating, and it's interesting again, it's not less food, it's less eating. There's very subtle differences. Less eating, less speech, and less sleep. And then I think we're on number six. And the sixth is that those things should be less. And on the other hand, there should be an abundance. Abundance of salawat, abundance of prayers, abundance of charity, and abundance of fasting. If they only pray the five times fourth prayer, they don't pray anything else. If they only fast in Ramadan, they don't do any extra fast. They only give zakat, they don't give any extra charity. Then they're not a person of practice. 
and a lot of this being guided on the spiritual path is trying to do additional and extra acts of worship to bring oneself closer to Allah Subhanahu Alright. Then, what happens? Okay, a person says, okay, let's say I find somebody with these criteria. What's going to happen? What happens due to the studentship of that shaykh? So by means of being a student of such a shaykh possessing such insight and wisdom, so what will happen? Then the student will make them, they will sort of chart out a way of life and a path for them which has virtuous, noble characteristics and attributes. Alright? And then he gives some examples such as sabr, such as salah, such as shukr, such as turakkul, such as yaqeen. Now all of these things but here were translated for you. So sabr means patience, fortitude, endurance, salah means prayer, a life of prayer and worship. Shukr means thankfulness and gratitude. Tawakkul means reliance and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. means certain conviction and faith. Well, qana'a. Qana'a means that a person can abstain from the world. A person can go without. They're okay. They're not always in want and need and desire of the world. They have a certain qana'at, right? Uh, which is used for his uh, contentment, right? I think the next would have been better if he said, Tamanina, 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 the nafs. That it means they have a serene, nafsul mutminna. They're serene, they're calm, they're not a creature or slave of their desire. They have a tempered, mutmain, itminan, nafs. Well, hilm, hilm means forbearance, but tawadu means humility. Well, ilm, knowledge, was sidq, truth, and veracity. Well, haya and modesty. Well, wafa and loyalty. Well, waqar means propriety and comportment. Well, sukoon and absolute rest and contentment. Rest. Uh, and ease. But ta'anni wa amthaleha. Ta'anni, he has put uh, deliberateness in acting. Fair enough. Uh, ta'anni, deliberateness, and a person who conscious, consciously acts, uh, very consciously aware and deliberate in their life, wa amthaleha, and other such characteristics. Fahuwa idha nurun min anwarin nabihi. Because all of these virtuous attributes is the real nur that came from the teachings of Nabi Kareem Always remember that the greatest legacy of the Anbiya is their akhlaq and their sifat, their ahwal, their kifiyat, their kirdar, their virtue, their heart, their personality. That's the real legacy, right? And these attributes and virtues is what makes a person the true legacy of Sayyidina Rasulullah what he left behind for our iqtida to follow as an example. Then now listen to what Imam al-Ghazali says. Very important thing, he said this over 900 years ago. Means you can say he said this almost 1,000 years ago. However, the presence of a shaykh who has all of the above mentioned characteristics is nadir, is extremely rare. And then he gives this classical example from Arabic poetry and literature, how rare is it? As rare as min al-kibrit al-ahmar, as red sulfur, which means extremely rare, like we would say in English, once in a blue moon, right? That's how English defines rare. It's become extremely rare. So you can imagine if it was that rare almost a thousand years ago, then you can imagine how rare it is in this day of age. And my own personal opinion is, and it's just an opinion, and it's just personal, <laughs> is that in this day and age, there's no more kamaleen left. 
Amurdi Makate Kamlin Kudor Hatamoki. And there was a Sheikh, his name was Sheikh Ahmad Zaruk Rimalatala, who was not very long, a couple of few centuries after Imam Hazarazan, maybe two, three hundred years after Imam Hazarazan. He actually wrote in one of his books about his time that the age of Kamalin has finished. Age of Kamalin has finished. That doesn't mean, obviously, like if you may not have the most Kamil Imam, it doesn't mean you're going to stop praying Salah behind him. You may not have the most Kamil doctor. It doesn't mean you won't. How many doctors are Kamil? Hmm? You ask me? None. <laughs> Alright? You ask them? <laughs> They'll say a few. Hmm? How many professors are Kamil? Hmm? So this is just the age that we live in. Right? This is an age that we live in. So, Baron Imam Razari Mahatale was saying it was extremely rare. Alright? Whosoever is given that great joy, felicity, happiness that they find such a Shaykh as we have mentioned above, and they take him and accept him as their guide in the spiritual path, then it befits them that they should do their ihtiram. So, again, venerate is not a good English word for this. Ihtiram means respect. Because venerate in English was used actually for God. That veneration is for God and respect is what's given to men. Alright? So the Arabic is That they should respect that shaykh outwardly and inwardly. Now we're going to come to a very interesting aspect of the text. I'm going to read it for you and when I read it for you it's going to disturb you. I'm going to read it for you it's going to disturb you. And then I'm going to explain it to you and then you will realize why these texts need to be taught because if you just read them yourself you might understand the meaning due to our own cultural social context that will be disturbing to you but that's actually not the meaning that was intended so let's watch and see if this will take place alright so let me read so you should do their ihtiram zahiran wa outwardly and inwardly amma ihtiram zahir as far as the outward respect you should show them so listen to what Imam Ghazali Muqtala will say. Number one, Number one, so he, I'm going to read the English first because the English translation will even make you more disturbed. Number one, that he should not contend with him nor engage in argument with him over anything even if he's aware of an error of their shaykh. He first argued. Number two, the student should not lay down the musalla, the prayer carpet, down in front of their shaykh, except at the time of carrying out the formal salah. And when the shaykh is finished, he should remove it. Number three, the student should not increase the number of nawafil, optional prayers that he prays in the presence of the shaykh. Number four, he should do whatever task is. Now, look at the difference in English. Whatever task is commanded by the master versus whatever task is instructed by the shaykh as he can manage and is capable. Four things. Now, a modern 21st century Muslim, when they read this, they think this is servile obedience and this is slavehood and this is making us a closed-minded, blind follower and slave of the shaykh. And ye wo pir prastiye jiske hum hamesha khilaf the or khilaf Right? And somebody will like, okay, Imam Mazali was fine up till now. I was always a little bit, you know, skeptical of these things. But I got him. I got him. Now he's showing his true colors. Right? This is all that is about. It always ends up coming on this mere blind, following, servile behavior towards the shaykh. Now I will do the paragraph for you again and explain each thing to you one and one. First now, you have to go back to the Arabic. Number one, Allah yujadilahu. 
he should not engage in what in Arabic is called mujadala. Jadal, jadal, mujadala. Mujadala means argumentation and disputation in a confrontational manner. It doesn't mean mashwara. It doesn't mean calling somebody's attention to something. It doesn't mean politely, gently, with wisdom, pointing out a mistake. It doesn't mean trying to solve that mistake. Mujadala has a very meaning. And especially Imam Ghazali at that time because Mujadala was actually a subject taught in the madrasa, which his student would have learned, Ilmul Mujadala, and it means, in fancy English, we call it the knowledge of dialectical debating. It's hardcore stuff. It's what lawyers do to each other in the courtroom. That's the best modern day example I can give you. Alright? So he should not engage in Mujadala with the Shaykh. Okay? Disputation, argumentation, right? With confrontation. Second, Right? Better, you can say, Some of you actually probably have your better Urdu has these bigger Arabic words in it. Ihtijaj is also a very strong word. Ihtijaj is what people go, they bring containers when they want to do that. So that's When they want to do it, it's a serious thing. Alright? So saying, don't do majala and don't do ihtijaj with the shit. And that's actually how people are with every professor in the world. When I was a professor, yes, so not, there were students who asked me questions. There were students who challenged me. There may be students who critiqued even the way I taught the course or the way I conducted the exam. But there's no way they're going to come at me with ihtijaj and they're going to come at mujadala because they know that's not accepted. That's not an accepted way of interacting and interrelating with somebody who's your instructor or your teacher or your elder or your parent. All right? So now you have to think just because just the same way the Shaykh is calling his son Walad, so the Shaykh Jistana student is a Rahani beta, Shaykh is a Rahani Bab. Alright? So we all he's saying is that Ihtiram, respect means that you won't do Ihtijaj and you won't do Mujadala. So then we would put this in English, then if we you know you have to and sometimes another thing I have from time to time tell you people in translation is English is a poor language and Arabic is a rich language. Like the dollar is a rich currency. Don't be offended, but rupee is a poor currency. So when you give one dollar, you get hundred rupees. So Arabic is a rich language. When you take one Arabic word, sometimes you need 10, 15 English words to translate that one Arabic word. That's why word for word translation, especially in Quran, when people go for this lovesy tarjama and they just memorize the vocabulary, you'll never get at the depth of meaning in Quran. There is no one English word that can capture Allah Ta'ala's one Arabic word. There's no English word like that. English is weak. There's no one rupee that's equal to one dollar. You always need a hundred rupees to equal one dollar. Alright? So now I will retranslate this first issue for you using a lot of words. As far as the outward manner and form and of respecting the shaykh, it consists of the stu- that the student should never engage in any way, shape, or form in disputation, confrontation, and Again, now, your Urdu is good enough. Mujadala, ihtijaj. Alright? Disputation, confrontation, dialectical, oppositional argument, debating, consternation, opposition, etc. with the shaykh. Alright. That's the first thing. Second, when he said this last thing, in alima khata'uhu, even if he knows about him being an error, what he meant simply here was that when you know the shaykh is an error, you have to adopt a different procedure. What happens is sometimes if they find somebody is an error, people in jazbah, they go straight to ihtijad and mujadala. 
So elsewhere in Imam Ghazali Rumantala, in his other works, and other classical works of this tradition, it is clearly mentioned and outlined what you're supposed to do when you find the shaykh to be in error. Number one, you can never follow the shaykh in their error. So if the shaykh, Allah Mustaz, is doing something against Sharia, you can never follow them in that mistake. Number two, even though they may be your shaykh, if they make a mistake, the mistake is a mistake. You cannot justify it and say, well, no, coming from him, it must be according to Sharia. Because the shaykh is not the miyad of Sharia. Sharia determines the miyad of the shaykh. All right? Number three, with adab, not with mujadala and ihtijaj, with adab and hikmah, you have to try to be a means to do islah to correct that mistake. All right? And fourth, if that doesn't, third or fourth, whatever number, if that doesn't happen, if the mistake can't be corrected, then the ulama have actually written a whole another detailed process. They say that if it is from one of the lesser sins, which is called sagai, then in that, no shaykh is absolutely pure like a prophet. Right? So if it is one of the lesser sins, and your efforts to correct that mistake aren't successful, then you keep making dua for the shaykh, and you keep trying. However, if the sin is not from the sagar, but is from the kabair, is from one of the major sins, right? Then there are two positions. One position is that you must leave the shaykh instantly. Second position is that even if it is from the kabair, you must keep trying to correct it and make dua. But then if you find out there is persistence, what the Arabic word used, istimrar. Some of your Urdu is better, you would know that word also. If there's istimrar on that, if there's persistence on the kabair, then you must leave the shaykh. So some say at the first instance of kabair, some say on the basis of the persistence of the kabair. Alright? But even in that, you will never do mujadala and you will never do ihtijaj. Alright? So this is the other. This is what this is the context in which Imam Ghazali was talking. Right? He is writing at a time and from a tradition and within that tradition and to members of the tradition. So that explains the first thing. Second, he said that you should not place down your prayer carpet. What does this mean? Actually, now this is something that doesn't happen anymore, even in the living tradition. But what happens sometimes is that, let's say you go to visit the sheikh, and the sheikh is sitting in his whatever office or in his room where he meets people, and you show up, and you take the musalla and you lay it out in front of him. This was viewed as suggesting that, okay, Shaykh, it's time to do ibadah now. So, you know, stop the class, stop the dar, stop the majlis, stop the mehful, stop the bayan. So this is a very minor point, actually, that Imam Azana is pointing out. Right? The first one is a very major point. The second is a very minor point. That, no, it's not, other, it's not your job to tell the Shaykh when it's time for him to do his nafil ibadah. So you don't go to him and say, okay, let's lay it out and let's do some nafil ibadah. Alright? You understand? Okay. And when he has finished, he should remove it. Right? This is a very light adab. This was something that people used to do for their mashayk, that when the shaykh had finished the prayer, you would fold up the prayer mat, so that the shaykh would move on to the next step. Maybe it's to give a discourse. Maybe it's that he just wants to recite Quran. Maybe he just wants to make dua. Maybe if he's in haram, he just wants to stare at Kaaba and look at Kaaba. Maybe he wants to get up and make dua. Right? Uh, these are very minor, minor points of adab. Third, was that he should not increase the number of the nawafil in his presence. This is something you should have been able to understand because this is nifaq. That okay, I normally don't pray these prayers, but if the shaykh is there, I'll start praying these prayers. 
So I happen to go with Shaykh to the Masjid for Maghrib. Me, I never actually pray Ababin because I'm praying next to Shaykh. So how can I just pray two sunnahs and walk out? I'm going to pray Nafil and pray Ababin. So this is Nifaq. <laughs> you cannot increase the optional prayers. So maybe the better times would be due to his presence or only in his presence. Right? That's not the reason. A second, but that's actually not the meaning he intends. What he is saying is that when you come to visit the Shaykh, you've taken time from him, you have to benefit from him, and you pray your knuckle prayers in your own time. I'll give you an example. If somebody takes an appointment for me, they're like, I want to meet you. I say, okay, let's go to the office. And he puts his muscle down, he starts praying nafil salah. I mean, that's a wonderful thing, but you don't take time from me and do that in the meeting time. You don't do that in my presence, right? So this is what sometimes apparently So apparently 900 years ago These guys had some Harkats that they used to do right? So this was apparently one of their harkats That they would sometimes show up and take time And in the presence of the shaykh Instead of talking to him or doing whatever mushroom they wanted They would start praying nafil salah hmm? Maybe they had some concept you know, Who knows, people come up with the most weirdest of things Maybe they think Oh shaykh has barakah If only I can pray two rakah salah near to him, then my salah will become fine. So what I'll do is I'll take a word from Shaykh, and when I go on the road, bus, I'll say, Allah Akbar. So hey, Mabuz, I used to sing, but no, 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 no. I said, hey, not like that. Allah follow what was going on. Alright? So these are two, three different meanings and understandings of this sentence. Next, okay, now this came. Uh, okay. Now, that he should... Uh, and remember I changed English He should do whatever amal The shaykh instructs him with To whatever extent he is able and capable of doing Now what does it mean? Because when you enter an instruction It's not talking about the shaykh commanding you to buy this car Or sell this house or It's not what happens in Pakistan Right? It's nothing to do It's talking about the instructions on the path of tarbiyah it's exactly the same as a professor. If you walk into my class, you have to follow my instructions. If I say, read this book, you're going to read that book. I say, write this essay, you're going to write this essay. As you show up for the midterm, you're going to show up for the midterm. Because this is what it means to register for my class. You entered into an instructional and a learning relationship with me. And you're taking me as your guide on that knowledge. And the instruction necessitates and requires that you follow my instructions. If you say, no, Professor, I'm not going to read the books on the syllabus, nor am I going to take the midterm exam, nor am I going to write the final paper. I say, fine, you can take the F right now. <laughs> you don't have to even wait. We don't have to even wait for any formalities. You can take it right now and go. <laughs> but, but, but in a more serious way, what's the point? And there's no relationship then. You're defying the instructor. So there's no instruction will take place. So what he's saying, when the shaykh tells you, for example, up till now, especially those of the shaykh told the student many things. You need to pray tajid, you want to get closer to Allah Ta'ala. You need to get these attributes that you just mentioned, sabr, shukr. student says, I don't want to do it. He says, no, no, you have to do these things. Yes, you have to do them. To whatever extent you're able, you have wusat, to whatever extent you have means, and to whatever extent you're strong enough to do it. So Shaykh tells you, okay, you need to fast two extra fasts a week, and you don't have the taqat to do it, you have to go back and tell the Shaykh, it's not in my taqat. If Shaykh says, oh, so you should try to give a lot of charity, you say, it's not in my wusat. So, بِقَدْرِ وُسْئِهِ وَطَاقْتِهِ So follow the, now I give you the full translation, right? 
you must follow the instructions of the Shaykh provided that there's nothing in those instructions that against the Quran, the Sunnah, and the Sharia and provided that those instructions are part of your tarbiyah and tazkiyah not about your dunya to buy the white car as opposed to the blue car alright and you must follow those instructions to whatever extent you're able and capable of doing so in your wusa and in your tawbah alright now after I've explained these three things to you it's not a shocking thing. It's actually just a professor, guide, instructor laying down how this relationship would be beneficial. Alright? Okay. As far as inward, now, again, second shock, and maybe now you will be a bit somewhat vaccinated towards this second shock. Alright? As far as respecting the shaykh inwardly goes, what does it mean? It means that every single thing that he hears and receives from the shaykh Outwardly, that la yunkiruhu fil batin, he should not reject it internally. Now, what does this mean? Well, he's talking about that if you hear a talk from the Shaykh, let's say on Hayat, and you listen to it outwardly, your heart has to accept it. And if you're in your heart, you say, no, no, I'm not going to follow these things, I'm not going to lower my gaze, I'm not going to have sabr, I'm not going to change. So, if your heart isn't in it, then there's no benefit. There's no benefit. You have to just listen outwardly, but with your inner ear, with the ear, with the ear of your heart. All right. And uh, they shouldn't deny it. La fitnan wala kohan. It means neither should they act contrary to the instructions. Instructions are you must pray fajr. He doesn't pray fajr. You cannot act contrary to the instructions, nor can you profess something contrary to the instruction set. Again, the instruction set is the teachings of Tazkiyah and Tarbiyah and Tadib according to our deen. Alright? Uh, otherwise, the person will be uh, attributed with nifaq. Okay? Nifaq means hypocrisy. Uh, that outwardly he appears and sits in front of the shaykh like he's a student who really wants to change, but actually practically he doesn't make any change in his life. Alright? Uh, that is something that a person shouldn't do. Then Imam Bazarata says a very interesting thing. If the student is not able to do this, if he's not able to listen with his heart and actually practice what he hears, Imam Bazarata is very strict, right? We're not that strict in the 21st century, but you're talking about almost a thousand years ago. He says, okay, he should leave. He should leave the company of the Shaykh because he's not able to benefit. He doesn't have the proper adab in that relationship. He should leave lest he fall into this nifaq. Alright? He should leave it ila ayyuwafika batinuhu zahira until his inner talab is actually in accordance with his upward talab. Okay? Until his heart is really truly present in that gathering. Okay. Then he says that another thing that a student has to do is that he must refrain and abstain from the gatherings and company of the person who has foul character and evil behavior. Alright? Uh, why? In order to protect his own self, to protect his own self from the shayateen, from the devils, both from the jinn and humanity, right? Both from the, the devils, from both the jinn and humanity, from finding a room or a place in his heart. Literally, there was unsekhne kalbi. You can say to them, they just want them to enter the 
empty chamber or porch of their heart, of his heart. Okay, and uh, so that he can protect himself uh, from, you can say, villainy, from their evil, from their treachery, uh, from the treachery of those shayateen, from the treachery, villainy of those shayateen. And in every condition, in any state, he should pick yahtarul fakra al ghina. Now, what does this mean? He should choose poverty over wealth. It doesn't mean what the words in English suggested. Okay, you should want to be poor. Fakr here actually in Arabic means need. It's better to remain in a state of need than be in a state of what would be the word opulence. This would be the more proper way to translate it. If any at any time one confronted with the two, it is better for him to choose to remain in need rather than opt for opulence. Opulence means extravagance. Alright? Extravagant wealth. Right? Because when a person becomes extravagantly wealthy, it becomes very hard then to do all these things that Imam Alanta talks about. And that's why feel it's not that they don't exist, but they're very few. The wealthy believers of this Ummah, there are very few of them who actually have these things called sabr, shukr, sidq, haya, tawakkul, etc. And that's a problem. Now, money, to the extent that you need it, you can acquire it. Money, to the extent that you need it beyond need, but for comfort, you can acquire that. But when it goes beyond need, and it goes beyond reasonable level of comfort, and it ends up in extravagance, and opulence. So this word ghana means riches, like a person is ghani. Ghani in Arabic is used for like what you would call ultra-rich. Alright? Being ultra-rich is not a good thing. So actually this was part of the training on this path, literally. That if there was a person, now let me use your 21st century terms. If we come across some tech entrepreneur who says that if I go this route, I can become a billionaire, I would say, look, I'm scared for you. I'm scared for you. You won't understand that. Because what are you talking about? I'm telling you, I'm going to be the first Pakistani billionaire on Forbes list of billionaires. I'm the man, right? I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> you are going to be in a billion dangers. <laughs> You're going to be billionaire level of khatra. Hmm? Because when the dollars are in the millions of billions, then every dollar is a khatra. When the dollars are in the thousands, then everyone is in a khatra. Then being in the thousands just itself could be a khatra. Right? That's what Imam Muzayyad does say. Right? He's not saying choose abject poverty and become a pauper over being a reasonable person. That's not what he's saying. Fakr comes from this word in Quran. Ya nas antumul that, oh people, each and every one of you is fakir, you are needy and dependent on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's good. It's good to be, it's good to say, okay, look, I only have enough money to last a few years. That's good. Because it keeps your effort on, it make, keeps you working. It keeps you hard working. You know, when Max Weber wrote this thing, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, that Protestant ethic wasn't about the ultra-rich. He was talking about people who were working and working for a living and yes, they were earning a living, but they didn't earn so much that they thought, okay, we'll never have to work again. You have to keep working. And it keeps you as a productive, engaged member of society. You will find a lot of, now I'm going to pick on a few, I don't know, a few of you, or at least definitely some of your friends, you will find a lot of upper-class elite kids who are totally spoiled brats. And when English say they're born with a silver spoon, they don't have to work, because they know that they've got rich uh, family money, Right? And so that reduces their humanity, that reduces their productivity. It's not a good thing. Alright? This is what Imam Zarif does say. Alright. 
Then But now you should know deeply that the uh, and again we prefer the Arabic to because the English word Sufism means a lot of things. Sufism can mean dancing, drums, tombs, shrines. The means when Imam al-Ghazali talks about sabr, taqwa, shukr, haya, etc. Alright? It says ultimately and, and you'll basically see how he's gonna define the itself will tell you that you don't wanna the word Sufism isn't used for these two things. He's going to define what is the self. Number one, al-istiqamatu ma'allahi ta'ala. Istiqama. Now this person, this is what this is actually wrong. Istiqama is not called correctness, right? Istiqama means no, no, sort of Abu Lahab, Abu Jal, hateful people. But he would go and meet them so nicely, invite them to come to Imam, as if like they're nice people. He would treat them as if they were virtuous, nice people. That's how he created sukun. That's how he was a person of sukun. Hmm? Now you understand? Alright. This is what Imam says. This, this particular paragraph Imam says one one word. It's a very... Uh, how do you can English say? It's a very dense language. There's a lot of meaning in a few words. Let's put it that way. And it is hard. We have to give him full credit. It's very hard to translate passages like this in Arabic constructs like this. Alright? Uh, condition. Malam yukhalafu shat. The Sufi will mold himself, bend himself, change himself in any and every way possible to create sukoon with that person. As long as he does, he won't change himself to the extent of going against Sharia. He won't do that. Alright? He won't do that. Okay. Now, he says, next he addresses the student. So clearly the student must have asked him, what is a shaykh? He must have asked him, what is the sawuf? And then he must have asked him next. Then you ask me, what does it mean, ubudiyyah? To become the abd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, slave with servant into Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam says, know that these are ubudiyah is three things. Number one is that you must, in Arabic, muhafazatun, that you must be muhafiz, you must be, you must be the guardian and watchman over yourself, that you steadfastly adhere to the Sharia. Second is to be pleased with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and destiny and the distribution of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And third, to leave the pleasures of your nafs in order to seek out the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Three aspects to what is Ubudiyya. And he says, you ask me what is Tawakkal? He says, Tawakkal is that you should make absolutely firm and certain your conviction and belief that in every single thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised. In other words, that you should believe that whatever Allah subhanahu has destined for you, it will reach you and it will happen absolutely. And whatever and whatever you, uh, and, and even if the whole world would strive to keep it from you, and that which Allah subhanahu has not destined, decreed for you, it will never ever come to you, even if the whole world tried to bring it to you. Alright? So if there's some khair Allah Ta'ala wants you to have, all the power in the world can't keep that khair from you. And if there's some shar Allah Ta'ala wants to save you from, all the power in the world can't afflict you with that shar. So you don't have to be scared of people. You don't have to worry about people. You know, if I make dua to Allah Ta'ala, Allah Ta'ala wants to save me from that evil, that shar, there's nothing, there's no force in the world that can make that shar happen to me. Alright? That is called the of Allah Ta'ala. Next page. And you ask me, what is sincerity? So know that sincerity is that all of your actions entirely are purely exclusively done for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
purely exclusively for the sake of Allah's Allah. Number two, ikhlas is that your own spiritual heart should not find joy and happiness. The Arabic word would be raqat. It should not find delight and pleasure in the praises of people. So you don't want to be viewed as praiseworthy by people, right? Nor would your heart in any way be saddened if the people find faults in you or blame you, reprimand you, censure Then Imam Allah says, and know that riya, riya means to show off, display, ostentation. Riya is born from, literally means riya is born out of an overestimation of creation. It says, tazim al-khalq, that you view makhluk to be azim. So what happens is that why do we want people to praise us? Because you overvalued and overestimated the value of a human being praising you. And if you realize that this person's praising me is irrelevant, the question is, is Allah Ta'ala happy with me or not? Right? This person says, oh, you're a great guy. He's not going to be able to save me on the day of judgment. He doesn't have the keys to Jannah. He's not going to be the one doing my hisab. Him thinking me of a great guy is really happy and then there's no benefit to me. The question is, Allah Ta'ala, does Allah Ta'ala think I'm a good person? That's the real thing. Right? Okay, if somebody thinks I'm bad or somebody's upset with me, right? I'm not, it's not that I wrong somebody. I said to if somebody's upset with me for a gilai. So I said, okay, fine. If this person's upset, I can try to make up with them, mollify them, pacify them. But the real problem for me is what if Allah Ta'ala is a gilai with me? What if Allah Ta'ala is upset with me? That should be a greater concern, a greater figure, a greater worry, a greater worry on my part. All right? So then he mentions, what's the cure? Because a lot of us have this problem that we overvalue and overesteem and overestimate creation. So he says, the cure for that, the cure for that is what? That you view every one of them as tahta al-kudrati, as subservient and falling under the might and power of Allah SWT. They're slaves, they're also weak. And they're under the power of that omnipotent being, Allah Al-Qadir. And when you view that, uh, number one, Number two, that they have absolute no might or power or ability to grant you any ease or to infl- afflict you with any hardship. So when you realize that, then you will become free of all of your insincerity and all the other lack of ikhlas will go away and then you will have true ikhlas. All right? But as long as you view them as being people of the will kudra wa irada, we wouldn't call it free will, that they're people of kudra and irada. It means they're people of power and they're people of determination. As long as you think of them like that, then you'll never be able to distance yourself entirely from real. Okay. And this says, Oh my beloved son, as far as for the rest of your questions and then the different matters that you asked me about, look, you have to go seek them in the longer works that I have penned down uh, and my different penned down longer works and compilations. All right? Uh, and uh, for some of them. Some of them he says that if I were to write them down, it would be an offense. It means that there's something that you've asked me that I can't explain to you in writing. Uh, and he says that, look, what you should simply do is practice whatever knowledge you have already acquired, and then what you don't know, Allah Ta'ala will make it clear for you. All right? Hadith of Nabi Akareem sallallahu that the person who does amal on their ilm, Allah Ta'ala gives them ilm of that which they didn't know. Alright? Uh, okay. Then he continues and says, Oh my beloved student, don't ask me today that which would be difficult for you, uh, except with the tongue of your heart. 
because Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi said in Quran once about the Sahaba Quran وَلَا أَنَّهُمْ سَبَرُوا حَتَّى تَخْرُجَ إِلَيْهِمْ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ So what happened was some Sahaba Quran they kept knocking on the door of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu because they wanted to ask him something so Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse in Quran that if only they had been patient and themselves waited for you to exit that would have been better for them so Imam Zan is using this as a, a play on words what he's saying, if you ask me too many things, you won't be able to practice at all. So we would say, Urdu, aap itni baat poochin jo aapko hazam ho sakta hai. itna plate per khanar lagayin jo aap kha bhi sakte hai. That's what Imam Zalat is saying. Alright, to his student. Okay? And he said, accept the advice of Khizr. Right? There are two views. One view is that Khizr was a wali and one view is that Khizr was a nabi. I personally view the proofs for him being a wali stronger. I'm not of the ulama or the Bizni and the Nabi. That's why I don't say Fizr alayhi salam, I say Fizr, Madhu Allah ta'ala, Anhu. Alright? So, Fizr Madhu Allah ta'ala, he said to Nabi Musa alayhi salam, and this incident mentions for God, فَلَا تَسْأَلْنِي عَنْ شَيْئِنْ حَتَّى أُحْدِثَ لَكَ مِنْهُ ذِكْرَى Don't ask me about anything until I myself explain it and mention it to you. Right? So there's a lot of lessons that the ulama of Tafsir have taken from that story in Surah Kahf about Khizr, Ridatun Nabi Musa And one aspect of that is some of the adab of the instructional relationship. It's not always going to be like that in every matter. Because not every teacher is Khizr. Alright? But in some matters, there's something Imam Zayi obviously has answered a lot of his questions up till now. He's talking about some other questions. Uh, we don't even know what they are, but obviously there's some other things that he asked Imam Ghazali. And Imam Zayi like, I'm not going to answer that for you right now. Right now you should content yourself with practicing what you already know. Okay? And then he quotes another. سَأُرِيكُمْ آيَاتِ فَلَا تَسْتَعْجِلُونَ Allah Look, we will show, surely show them our, show you our signs, but you should not try to hasten us in that. You should not try to make us hurry up. Okay, falatas alni So don't ask me questions prior to the proper time. Don't ask me things prematurely. You know, for example, Shaykh, when we go to Jannah for those and we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, will we be able to see Nabiya Kareem Sassam also at the same time? Or will Rasulullah also be looking at Allah Ta'ala along with us? I said, don't ask me these questions right now. Rather, you should ask me how to get into Jannatul Firdaus. Once I feel content that you have actually learned all the knowledge required for you to get into Jannatul Firdaus, then I'm content that you have done practice on that knowledge and I feel you are going to Jannatul Firdaus, then I myself am going to ask you this question and you yourself will tell me the answer to this question. Alright? So much again. Right, he must have asked some high level type question. We don't know what he asked, but Imam Zali He's really clearly setting him straight in this paragraph. Alright? Uh, and be certain that you will not arrive. Uh, so you're not going to arrive at any of these states, ahwal, sifat, except with Allah, with Sayyid. He's calling it spiritual. Sayyid means it's a whole journey. It's not going to be one or days of amal. So the word in Arabic used for a long 
year-long amal. Years, long years of long efforts of amal, that's called sayr. Alright? So it's going to take a whole long process. Right? And Allah SWT has used this word in the Quran. They call it Allah. That you do not travel on this earth and reflect and ponder and gaze and learn lessons. So it means that you will travel. And there will be certain things, another, if Muhammad is making a ploy, that in words, there are certain things you will be able to reflect upon, gaze upon, and reflect upon, and understand later on in your journey on the path towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? And then he tells them, Billahi! Oh, dear beloved student and son, really, he swears by Allah Ta'ala that when you travel on this journey towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will see some strange things, wondrous things. You will find amazing things will happen in your life. Wondrous things will happen. But you must keep having persistence. The main thing in all of this matter is to have persistence and steadfastness. The way that the Nun Musri, he was a wali of Allah Ta'ala, he said to one of his students that, look, if you can have istikama, persistence, then you can come and learn. Otherwise, now, again, this is his English, do not engage in the travesties of the Sufis. What he said is, فَلَا تَشْتَغِلْ And look, don't do these shughl. If you're not going to do this for a reason, right? You don't do zikr just for the sake of zikr. You learn zikr and practice zikr if you're in it for the long haul. You want to be a person of amal, you want to get these states of taqwa, sabr, sugar, etc. And if you're not in it for the long haul, you're not in it for the real reason, so you said, don't bother with this zikr It's not the path for you. It's not the path for you. Alright? Okay. Now Imam Zahra says that I'm going to give you eight advices, and this is the last part of his text. Alright? Uh, basically he gives his eight advices and then he's going to give dua. Alright? Now these eight advices are very important. First of all, these eight advices should be mandatory reading for every alim. He's actually advising a young alim. But even for those who are not ulama, it's a very good way for you to understand how mashayikh used to do tarbiyat of ulama. Right? You're going to get behind the scenes. Look at this now. This is live. Imam Ghazali Sheikh doing tarbiyat of his alim student. All right? And in that, there are also many lessons and advices that are relevant for us also who uh, may not be ulama. So listen to the eight things. Now after Imam Zali telling him all these things, finally, if you remember from the introduction, one of the things he asked was, I want some nasiha. So I have some questions I want to ask you, I want the answers, and I want some nasiha. Here comes the nasiha. Okay? Inni ansahuka. Indeed, I'm going to give you nasiha about eight things. Accept them from me. Learn this from me. Lest your knowledge become a liability if you're on the day of resurrection. Because he's worried. And this is the truth. If ulama do not truly follow and practice their deen, their ilm will actually not count for them, it will count against them on the day of judgment. And the mashayikh of this ummah had a great figure and concern for the ulama. Alright? That we have to make an alim ba'amal. We have to make an alim with ikhlas. So he says, look, you've listened to these eight advices, otherwise if not, it may count against you. Of those eight advices, there are going to be four things, Imam is saying, four things that you should do and four things that you should leave. Char karnikitis, char chornikitis. Four things that you need to do and four things you need to leave. But let me start with the one that you should leave. Number one, first thing that you should leave is do not argue with anyone about anything. Bes mabasa, jagra. 
کسی کے خلاف فتوا نکالنا امام such as riya ostentation display hasad envy and jealousy kibr pride and arrogance wal hikmi wal adawati wal mubahati wa ghairaha so it means that you know to have resentment and to have enmity and to have you can say find boastfulness and all these things all of it comes from arguing once you argue with someone you have envy towards them you have arrogance towards them you boast in front of them you have enmity towards them And this is precisely the greater harm that Imam Abu'l-Zayl is saying. So he's cautioning the alam, don't do this stuff. Don't do this stuff. He says, yes, okay, now, if it so happened that between you and between someone, or between you and some community, arises a matter, arises a matter or an issue. And your intention as the alam is simply this, that okay, the truth according to Allah SWT and deen should be manifested. All right, and know that in that case you are allowed discussion, not mujadala ahtijat. You are allowed discussion, all right? Uh, and even then, even then you have to be careful about your intention if you engage in that discussion. Number one is that you should make no distinction between the truth being disclosed on your tongue or that of someone else. It means, okay, you think you might know the truth, so fine, you have the discussion so that for the sake that the truth might be known, but you have to go with an open mind that maybe the other party is actually on the truth. So, if you, so that's very different from mujadil and ihtijaj means I'm right and they're definitely wrong. And I have to slam them down and show them they're wrong and show them I'm right. No, no, you can't do that. If you think you're on truth, go ahead and do it, but do discussion and be open that maybe you're actually on the truth, maybe they're on the truth. So if you want to talk, be ready to listen. That's what he wants to say. Right? If you want to start the discussion, be ready to participate and listen and engage in that discussion. Second, and, and, and you shouldn't worry, you just, if you really want the truth to be revealed, so put this disclose on your tongue or that of somebody else, go on truth seeking, maybe they're the ones who have the truth. And you should be ready for that and you should be happy with that. Because you're tr- if you truly are only seeking the truth. The second is that discussion in private should be preferable to you than in public. Don't go fatwani chapanos ki khilaf. Internet Alright? Don't go do these things publicly. Go meet that person privately, sit them down and try to hash it out, have a discussion. And see if you can find the truth together. Alright? So now right there, I mean you can understand if we as I mean us ulama we follow this, this is the best piece of guidance. And Allah says, right, if we don't do this, oh, we're gonna be in trouble in the day of judgment. Alright? So this is the first thing. 
Generally, also, it applies to everybody. You don't want to have argumentation, disputation with anyone. And if there's any, any issue any ordinary believer needs to resolve with any other ordinary believer, do it with an open heart, open mind to find out what is the truth and try to do it privately. Even husband and wife should not argue in front of children. There's a mistake sometimes parents make, right? Even privacy means even look let the children go to sleep. But don't, don't show your anger with each other. Wait, go away when you're just alone. Husband and wife should never argue in front of the parents or in front of the in-laws. Husband should never say anything to his wife or in front of the mother-in-law. Her, his mother, her mother-in-law. No, 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 wait. Wait, you walked in, you saw something that is clearly wrong. Wait, wait. Wait when you're alone with the wife and then talk to her about it. Wife saw something wrong in the husband, she should wait. None of the children, wait. Privately, privately, as privately and calmly as possible. As calmly and as privately as possible. Alright? And when you say whatever you want to say, be ready that maybe there's another side. Maybe there's another explanation. Maybe it does not actually, things aren't what they appear to be. Alright? So these are the guidelines that Imam Ghazari was given. Second, I think he says something about this also. I, this is a long one. Listen, I will mention to you something useful at this juncture. Understand that questioning about difficulties is, as it were, showing the sickness of the heart to a doctor. And replying to it is an attempt to cure this sickness. Alright? So now he enters the second thing. Second thing is, okay, I'm not disputing with anybody. Somebody comes to me with a question. Right? Somebody says, okay, Milana, I want to ask you this question. So it's fine. Right? He, he seems to be a truth seeker. He's asking me a question. He wants a request for religious knowledge. So Imam Zali explains, what is this? He says, when somebody asks you a question, about any, and again, uh, you know, about any difficulty, any matter, religious counseling, anything. So it's like showing to a doctor. So he says, that, look, what's happened here is the person has an ignorance in them. So the sickness is ignorance. They themselves don't know the answer, right? And the cure is knowledge. And the doctor is the one who is knowledgeable, all right? So, so the problem is that the man of inadequate knowledge is not expert in nursing. Nor will the wholly knowledgeable man treat every patient. So two things. If there's a person who is not a properly qualified alim, that he's not qualified enough to always cure the ignorant of their ignorance, right? Uh, ignorance here in English is normally negative. He's not using it in a negative way. He's just saying the person doesn't have knowledge. And second, and very important, nor will the holy knowledge of a man treat every patient. Even if you are a separatist alim, you can't think you can solve everybody's problems. You can't answer everybody's questions. It's not going to work that way either. Your Skill as an alim still doesn't mean that you can guide every single person because no one individual will be the guide for everyone. You would say, no, look, you see, That's what Imam Zadda is trying to explain. Alright? Okay. Instead, he will treat whoever longs to, whoever desires to get treatment and help. And if the sickness is chronic or incurable, the expertise of the doctor in regard to it is to state that it is incurable. You tell the person that, look, there's no solution to this, right? Like, I showed up, I'm angry, I gave my wife three divorces, can you tell me how to get back together? It's done, it's finished. You broke something so badly it can't be fixed, right? Uh, I did this, I did that. People do all types of things, right? And he will not concern himself with treating it since it would waste his time. It's impossible. Next, know that the disease of ignorance, it, he means lack of knowledge, not knowing, okay? Uh, I can, maybe let me soften a few people up, but it's not knowing. So the predicament of not knowing... The predicament of not knowing is of four kinds. The first of them is incurable, and the other three are not curable. 
As for what trigger Arndt and Kubril was, the first is someone who's questioning or arguing is out of his envy or hate for you. So they're not out to seek the truth, they're not out to learn. They're questioning you because they have hatred for you, they have envy for you. And this happens, Imam Zarek, people come to ulama like that. Look, nefrat me'ate, hasad me'ate, bukh me'ate. Right? And he's trained the alam, the young, look, you don't just give up, you, you can't win that. There's no response you can give that can handle that situation. Alright, it's incurable. So he says, whenever you answer with him, even the best, clearest, or more evident reply, it only increases him in hate, hostility, and envy. I had this experience with a couple of students. So sometimes there were discussions they would have, and I realized that when, no matter how much I explained to them, I can't satisfy them. Because they, they don't want the answer. They actually just wanted to show that the person they follow knows everything, and traditionally, ulama know nothing. And when I would answer the question, they couldn't actually show that, so they would get more angry. <laughs> exactly this thing. I, it would only increase them in their hatred, hostility, and envy towards me. I didn't realize it was so I kept engaging them. I got happy, okay, you know, most of these guys are coming, they want to learn, let's have a discussion. But I realized the hard way that it didn't work like that. Alright? So I myself have experienced this in my life here in Lahore. Alright? So Imam Ali, if I had read this, or I had actually read it, but I didn't I didn't practice what I had learned. Huh? I should have remembered this at that time. He said the modus operandi is not to engage in replying to them. Just don't, don't engage a person who is coming to you out of envy and hatred. And then he quotes this uh, classical Arab, Arabic poem. An end may be hoped for every hostility except for the hostility of the person who was hostile to you due to envy. یعنی آپ ہر نفرت کے علاج کو امید رکھ سکتے ہیں اللہ وہ نفرت جس کی بنیاد حسد ہے وہ نفرت جس کی بنیاد حسد ہے نا وہ نفرت کے کوئی علاج نہیں علاج نہیں right? so that you should turn away from that person who themselves have turned away from our admonishment and advice in the Quran and that person has no desire for anything except the worldly life. Alright? And he says that the person who has envy, the hasid, Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu he said that the hasid burns and sets fire to his amal the same way a uh, uh, flame sets fire to the crop. And the Bihakrim Sallallahu said that uh, yeah, envy devours good deeds as Hasid devours good amal, salih, just the same way that fire devours wood. Right. So that's the first person. The first person who you cannot engage is the one who comes to you out of hostility or envy. Second is the one who has foolishness. What does it mean the person who is not intellectually capable of understanding the answer to the question? This happens sometimes. The people will ask a question, but they're not intelligent enough to grasp the answer. Alright? So, there's a saying attributed to Nabi Isla that verily I was not capable, I was not incapable, meaning I was able to even bring the dead to life, but I was incapable of curing the fool of their folly. Okay? Who is that person? This is someone who has spent, this is Imam Uzai writing nine, over 900 years ago. A person who has spent a small time in pursuit of learning, studying something 
in the way of non-revelatory, and revelatory knowledge, so out of his stupidity, he interrogates and queries the great scholar who has passed and spent his entire life in the non-revelatory and revelatory disciplines of learning. And this person and their ignorance, they think, uh, the word idiot is strong, it means that this, this less intelligent person, and due to their lack of knowledge, estimates that what is a problem for him is also a problem for the scholar. For example, somebody coming and insisting that, you know, I attended a class uh, about free will and predestination, and this is just a paradox that can absolutely not be solved. Okay, now the scholar tries to explain to him how Islam addresses this issue, but that person, due to that one philosophy lecture of one hour that he heard from one professor, taking that to be the gospel of truth, he says, no, I just can't, I can't accept your answer. It, it's, it's finished. Islam is finished. My iman is finished. I'm an atheist, right? And many times, actually, we say this is in Arabic, we call it the sunna. If you're those better, we say, you the banality atheist. Actually, it's not a real, deep, sophisticated, philosophical engagement. It's a flirtatious engagement with philosophy, due to which he has abandoned his long-standing tradition of deen. All right? And often it's because they're not intelligent. He's not as smart as Bertrand Russell. He's not some brilliant person. He's less intelligent. If he had been more intelligent, he would have been able to understand the response and the refutation of that atheistic philosophy. But because he's less intelligent, he can't understand the refutation. So you're stuck. You don't know what to do with a person like that. Alright? So this happens sometimes. Alright? And the problem is because he doesn't know it himself, so he, so he does not even know this much, that his questioning is due to his lack of intelligence, therefore you should not engage in answering it. So don't engage in the person who comes to you with hostility and envy, and don't engage with the person whose intelligence is not sufficient to the task of understanding the knowledge you're trying to impart to them. Third, right? Third is someone asking for guidance. He's sincere. And uh, everything he does not understand in the discussion of the great scholars is attributed by him himself to the shortcomings of his own knowledge he accepts. And his question is to learn. However, he is intelligent and does not grasp realities. You should not engage in answering him either. As Nabi Karim Sallallahu said, that we have been told, نَحْنُ وَعَشْرُ that us, the assembly, and all the Anbiya have been commanded by Allah Ta'ala that we should address people according to their level. We should address people according to their level. For example, there may be a person who comes who is very sincere, right? does not ignorant, does not hostility, doesn't have envy, and is asking, and they, want, and they generally want to understand some very intricate matter of Islamic law or legal theory or jurisprudence, right? But that's an understanding that only a formal student can get. Let me give you an example. This is why now people, a lot of educated people, they don't like to hear this, right? But this is a reality for every branch of knowledge. For example, in science, there's a certain type of literature which is called popular science writing. That is when scientists try to explain things at the level for a non-scientist. The ulama have to do the same thing. We have to explain things for the level of a non-specialist. But then there's a certain type of knowledge that only a specialist can understand. There's a certain type of question. If I go to a physicist, he'll say that, look, Mawli Sahib, we're very happy that you have this interest in physics, but you, the question you're asking, 
To really understand and grasp the answer, you need a solid background in physics, at least BA level physics, not even PhD, at least BA level physics to really understand the question that you're asking. To understand the question, let alone understand the answer. Now, if a physics professor does that with you, you say, okay, you're right, you know. I was just sorry, you know, blame me, I was just kind of interested in physics, but I understand, you're right. If I say that to you, you walk out dusty, like, ulama, hame kuch nahi samajhte, ilke laik nahi samajhte, poor deen ka take up now, aapko samajhte, right? If we try to give you an answer, we say, look, you know, to understand this, you really need to have understood tafsir. You need to have understood three fourth tafsirs of this ayah. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to understand what I explained to you, what the meaning of this ayah is. To understand, okay, why is there a contradiction in these two hadith? Why did the Prophet sometimes pray and not raise his hands after Raku? And why did he pray and sometimes raise his hands? How is that possible? Why did he pray in two different ways? I said, okay, there's an answer to that. But that answer requires a certain foundational level of knowledge, right? And the problem is you don't have that foundational level of knowledge. What we do for you is we say, okay, look, the way we answer that question is we invite you to study that foundational level of knowledge, right? For example, you go to a doctor, and the doctor prescribes a particular antibiotic to you. You say, okay, you know, but you know, when I went in the pharmacy, I saw there were like about 50 types of antibiotics. So can you tell me why you're giving me augmentin and not clithromycin? What will the doctor say to you? So there's an answer to that question. There's not, it's not what happened. There's a complete sound basis in knowledge why I'm giving you augmentin and not clithromycin. However, you will not be able to understand why. <laughs> I mean, you all get insulted, you realize. It's like if you want to understand why, you go to medical school or study pharmacology, come back to me, I'll explain to you why I'm prescribing for you to do not put But at this point, you won't be able to understand that question. So same thing, you ask me, well, why do you follow the Hanafi position on this and not the Shafi position on that? It's the same thing. Because I'm prescribing you augmentin or clithromycin, because I'm a doctor, I have the right to prescribe. I'm a mufti. <laughs> you don't, you won't be able to understand. You won't be able to understand. Alright? So you have to accept that, you have to acknowledge that. Why do we acknowledge that in worldly education? Because we're universities, so we know what it means. We knew, because I was a history person, I know that there was a physics department who had a minute, and that's a separate effort, so I can acknowledge that. But because you haven't seen the effort of Islamic scholarship, so it's unknown, unseen to you. When it's unknown, unseen, it's sort of unacknowledged. And you think, that, oh, what's Islamic knowledge? It's what I do is I just read on my own and surf a couple of websites and ask, you know, Sheikh Yahoo and Mufti Google, and, but that's it, that's Islamic knowledge. Because you haven't seen real Islamic scholarship. You've seen real scientific scholarship, so you know I'm a non-scientist. You're willing to accept I'm a non-scientist. It's hard for a person to accept I'm a non-alim. All right? So this is what Imam Ghazali is talking about. But way before, he's writing this at a time when Islam was the greatest civilization on earth. When Baghdad was the Harvard, Princeton, Oxford, Yale, Cambridge at the time. Even when we were at our height, there were issues like this. You can only imagine now how much more of an issue this has become. Okay? As for the sickness which is curable, which is the person whose question you should ask, is the person who is asking for guidance, who is intelligent, understanding, is not overwhelmed by envy, anger, love, reputation, prestige, wealth. He's a seeker of Sirat al-Mustaqeem. And his questioning and his questioning and querying are not out of envy, obstinacy, stubbornness, or desire to test. We recognize that when people do that to us. Desire to test. So they're not coming to you that this person is curable 
and it is permissible to engage in a reply to this question. In fact, replying to him and engaging him is fard upon you, O Allah. Hmm? Right? And actually, this is what we try to increase here in Islam Institute. We need to increase the more beneficial interactions of learning and instructing in our deen. And it's hard, and the best way to sort of counter the non-beneficial is to increase the beneficial. Right? Okay. So this, all of this was the first thing to give up was, the first thing to give up was again, don't engage in argumentation, disputation. Eight advices, four things to give up, four things to do. Second thing to give up is that you are on your guard, this is a big jeep thing, you are on your guard against becoming a preacher or an um, admonisher. Because it involves much harm unless you first practice what you preach and then you preach to the people. Think that what Allah SWT told to Nabi Isa Imam Ghazali was also a scholar of the Bible. Whatever level or whatever transmission of the Bible, he also used to read, he read the Bible also. Whatever the Bible was at his time. Right? So sometimes he even takes quotes from there. So what was said to Nabi Isa that Ya Abu Maryam, also of Mary, that preach to your soul yourself, and if it learns its lesson, then preach to the people, otherwise show humility before your God. But he also knows that many times ulama, that's what they do, they have to give the Jummah khutbah, they have to give bihan, they have to preach. So it's okay, if you are put to the test, he says, ye aapar azaab agar aajai, bihan dene ka waaz nasir ka azaab se aap me mubtala ho, if you ever afflicted with this test, then be careful of two things. Number one, First is pretentiousness and talking. And you'll get an idea what pretentious is because when I read the English, the language will tell you. Pretentiousness and talking by way of idioms, allusions, outbursts, verses, poems for Allah Ta'ala to test the pretentious. Alright? So pretentious is called takalluf. Takalluf. Vava, logoko, vava, karwana, sheer shai, huha, shor sharapa. Right? So this is what he's saying. Don't, don't do that in your preaching. Be simple, straight, straightforward, natural, whatever you are, however you talk. Don't falsely adopt airs uh, and falsely adopt uh, these you know, fancy idioms, illusions, outbursts, verses, and poems. Right? The pretentious and excessive person exhibits inward decadence and the indifference of their heart. Yisrif apna, how would you say in Urdu? Apna adura dil ko karta. He's just revealing. Uh, the fraudulent nature of their own button. The purpose and idea of wa'az and nasiha is for the abid, the worshipper, to remember the fire of the hereafter and his own remissness, it means his own lack and his own failures and lapses in his obedience and service to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the purpose of advising people is so that they consider and reflect their past life in which they spent in futile things which did not concern them. Third is that they should consider what difficulties lie before you need ahead of them, such as the absence of firmness, they don't have yakin in their iman, what's going to happen to them in the final moments of their life, and what state will they pass when the angel of death clasps their ruh, and will they be capable of answering munkar and nakir in their grave, and what will happen to them on the day of judgment, and all of the different scenes and phases that will occur on the day of judgment, and will they will cross pull sirat to cross the bridge safely, or tumble into the pits and chasms of jahannam and hellfire. And reminding people of these things, is, and, the, and remembering these things is what should remain in the heart, and what should disturb is apathy. Apathy means they're content with themselves, they're happy where they are, you need to shake them up, you need to shake them up. 
to, to foment these fires and lament these calamities, that's called tazkir, that's called uh, reminder and admonition. All right? So to inform people of these things and warn them of their remissness and negligence and to make them see the defects of their nafs so that the heat of these fires impinges on the congregation and the calamities disturb them so that they make amends for their past lives so they make toba as far as possible and their distress means that now they are true have a fikr and concern and worry for the days that they passed in their previous previous life in the, in the life of lived up till now and disobedience to Allah Ta'ala, all of this is called wal this is called preaching right and he gives an example so I'll do it once for you and then I'll Show, I'll show you a different way in English what he's trying to say. It is as if you saw that a flood was bearing down on a person's house and him and his family are inside and you say to them, look out, look out, run from the flood. So that's the correct thing. In these circumstances, does your heart long for you to give the owner of the house your message with pretentious expressions, anecdotes, allusions? It is completely repugnant to you. The situation of the preacher is like this and you should give them up. What does it mean? So give an example. It would mean that let's say you see the flood coming to the house. You say, O dweller and inhabitant of thine house, the water sent from thy Lord are proceeding in ever increasing speed and urgency unto thou and thy family. Proceed haste with and exit from thy dwelling. Would you talk like that? This is the son of, this is the kalluf, this is fancy, flowery speech. You would say, no, look, look, get out, look, look out, look out, run from the flood. That's how you would talk. So it's the same thing. People, the fire of Jahannam is encroaching upon them because of their lack of amal, their abundance of sin, their negligence of deen. They're mistaking their rub for an absent rub. So you need to talk to them in straight up, straight forward, frank, forthright language. And just get rid of the flowery expressions and flowery poetry and hoo-ha and va-va. Alright? If you want to know what that is, yeah, I, saw, I won't do that. I won't take names. But there are certain people, if you YouTube them, that on YouTube there are some examples of hoo-ha, shor, sharaba, vava. Alright? And people's lives don't change because of that. People go in and they hoo-ha, vava, and then they go home and their life remains the same. Alright? So it's not about dancing and jumping and yelling and screaming. Alright? That's not what uh, deen is. That's not nasiha. And the best proof of this is that's not the way Nabi Akareem Sallallahu Alaihi taught Sahaba. That's not how he changed their lives, right? He didn't give all these things, he didn't embellish and talk to the Sahaba Quran like that. Alright? Okay. So this was one big thing. He says, okay, look, basically if you give bayan, you have to give it straight up. Best thing, don't give bayan unless you've already practiced what you preach. If you find that you have to preach to the people because they need guidance, and you yourself are like me, you're still a work in progress, you have to do it, then don't have the flowery expressions. Alright? Second. Second way that your effort in your preaching should not be for the people in your congregation to roar or show hysteria and terror at their clothes. I guess this is the one short genre part. Roar or show hysteria and terror at their clothes so that they said, Kya bad. What a gathering that was. Hmm? For all this is worldly, this is not dunya. And all of that is produced by indifference. Rather, your zealous, your hardcore, deep desire intention should be lead people from the dunya to the akhirah, to take them out from laziness to obedience, to take them out from all acquiring more greedy, greedy and unrelenting acquisition of the world to contentment and ability to say bus to the world. 
from stinginess and miserliness to instead generosity and charitable behavior, from doubts about Iman to certainty and conviction, from laziness and apathy and indifference about their state to conscientious vigilance and awareness of their state, and from illusion and delusion to a state of always having the zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You should evoke in them the love for akhirah and loathing for the dunya. You should teach them about ibadah and zuhud, about worship and being less material in this world. Don't allow them to become complacent and lazy due to the kindness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on them. I mean, Allah ta'ala gives people a lot and that makes them lazy. Allah ta'ala adorns them with his worldly blessings and that makes them forget that same being. Alright? Since predominating in their nature is a disinclination from the path of the Sharia. Basically, they are staying away on manhaj shari They stay away from that. And they're so busy and chasing down those and striving for to acquire those striving for those things that displease Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they've got caught up in bad virtues, vices, bad morals, bad attributes. Alright? So he says that you should cast in their hearts the fear of Allah subhanahu wa You should alarm them, warn them, and you should put them on guard regarding the pitfalls and dangers they have yet to face in their life. Perhaps then their inner temperament and their batin will become changed, will become transformed, and then their outward behavior will become exchanged, meaning now they will outwardly become people of virtue as opposed to being doing outward acts of sin. And then from that tawbah and repentance they make, uh, they, then they will make tawbah and repentance from the disobedience they used to commit. All of these things are what you should try to draw out and should appear in them as a result of your preaching. This then is the right way to preach and advise. And all preaching that is not done, thus, which means not done to truly, sincerely bring out the spiritual reformation and transformation, Anything other than that is a curse upon both the speaker and the listener. Nay, indeed, it is said that the former, meaning the speaker, is a ghaul, a demon, a shaitan, right? Who sweeps men off the path leading to Allah and destroys them by getting them involved in these mm, irrelevant uh, tearing clothes and all that stuff. And they must run from free, flee from such a person, since such a speaker will wreak havoc on their religion, the like of which even shaitan himself cannot. It is incumbent on whomsoever has the wherewithal, wherewithal means ability, capability, to remove such people from the member, remove such people from the lectern, from the pulpit, and to prevent them from being able to speak. This is part of honorable maruf of Nana Munka. Alright? So there's two things. Third thing. Third thing is to give up is that you have nothing to do with princes and rulers. Don't be sarkari darbari mullah mola. Hmm? Nothing to do with princes and rulers, nor see them, because the spectacle of them, gatherings with them, socializing with them are serious danger. If you are put to the test by this, right, uh, then you should avoid praising and complimenting them, for Allah is angered if a wrongdoer or tyrant is praised. And whoever prays for their long life, he wants Allah to be disobeyed on earth. Because Imam Zali was living a time when the rulers were corrupt. So if you make dua for the life of the ruler, and the ruler is unjust, the ruler is causing injustice and oppression, if you're praying for his life to be longer, you're praying for his oppression and injustice to be longer. Well, so you can't be making dua for such people, right? Obviously, if the ruler is not corrupt, not unjust, 
And obviously the alam can and should go meet the good, just rulers and try to work together in ways to bring about betterment in the society. Right? It's a sad reflection on that early period of medieval period of Muslim history that the rulers were so corrupt at that time. All right. Uh, here, I think all of you know your Muslim history. Know that unfortunately it happened very quickly. Right. And basically the Umayyads and Abbasids, both of them were pretty much largely, with some exceptions, no doubt, largely corrupt. Uh, and it's something that has continued, uh, continues still today in the majority of leaders of the Muslim states in the world. All right? Uh, fourth thing to give up is accept nothing of the benefaction of princes nor their presence. Don't take the hadiyah from the rulers and the ministers and the princes. Even if you know they require legitimately, even if it's halal. Because when you expect it from them, it degrades your deen, you're lowering yourself, or oh, other. It degrades you in your rutbah, in your darajah, in your manzab. Alright? And sycophancy, partiality for the means, it will make you soften to them. Because when he treats you nicely and gives you gifts, he gives you nice plot for your masjid, madrasa, then when he does something wrong, you won't be able to speak out against him. So you'll be self enough, you won't be able to do your duty as a caller to the truth and as a caller to justice. Hmm? So don't, don't accept things from them. It's what, what in English we call patronage. Right? Don't take state patronage. Alright? Uh, all this is corruption in religion. The least of its harm least of it is that when you receive their donations and benefit from their material possessions, you like them. And whoever likes an individual prefer him to live longer, huh? as in prefer preferring the survival of the tyrant constitutes a desire for the creatures of Allah to suffer tyranny under them and a desire for the ruination of the world. You can tell that things were quite bad in Imam Azar at this time. Alright? What is, what is worse than this for deen and our final outcome are unjust? Beware, beware the, the, the suggestions of shaitan or some people's talk to you, some people trying to convince you does not deceive you to the effect that the best and most appropriate thing is for you to receive the money from them and distribute it amongst the poor and beggars for they are wasting it on living in disobedience and you're spending it on helpless people is better than they're spending it. Imam Azali bought Daikman but he's saying is a person might think that, okay, look, let me take the benefaction of this minister, because if I don't take his money, he's just going to spend it on building himself his mansion number five, and DHA new phase when it's get built, right? So better I take his money, at least I'll use his money on the poor and the needy, and I can use his money for social work and social welfare. The Muslim is very strict, right? I mean, I don't know today if we would necessarily suggest that. But I'll say, don't even take it for that. Just don't touch them and don't touch their money. Hmm? That's what he was saying. Alright? Uh, because he said, Shaitan has severed many people's necks by these whisperings. So, probably what Imam Azali saw is it's very easy to get corrupted. The first time you take money, you took it, okay, I give it all for social welfare. Second time you take it, third time you take it, fourth time you take it, fifth time you take it, sooner or later, Shaitan will get you. Right? And then you'll be corrupted. Right? And so Imam Azali was worried, he wanted the ulama to be pure, he wanted the integrity. Like today in, in Western, especially Scandinavian and European countries, they made to talk about the integrity of the civil servants. Right? That the civil servants should have this level of impeccable public servant, civil servant, should have the level of impeccable ethics and integrity. That's what Imam Azali wanted for the ulama. 
Alright, because he viewed the ulama like that, as the khuddam of the society. That the ultimate civil servant and public servant was the alim in that society. Alright? So these were the four things that you should not do. As for, as, as, as for the four things which you must do, uh, and these are quite easier because he's meant, mentioned things like them before. Number one, you must make your relation, your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your mu'amala with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, such that were a servant of yours to behave thus with you, you would be content with him and not weary of liking him nor get angry. You want your employee, your junior, your khadim to do every single thing you say. You should do everything Allah Ta'ala says. You would get upset at your driver if just once he refused to take your son to school. Just once. If he says, I just don't feel like it. You say, what? You say, but sir, I just don't feel like taking your kid to school today. I've been with you for 10 years, but today I just don't feel like it. Most people would fire the driver on the spot. But you want to be like that? Yeah, I just don't feel like paying Fajr today. You want to be like that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That's what Imam Zahat is saying. Hmm? You have an employee at work. He shows up late for a meeting. Hmm? You get angry. And you ask him, was there any reason? You say, no, I just didn't feel like coming on time. You say, what? You say, no, come on, boss. I mean, 10 years I've always been on time. Today I didn't feel like it. All right? Give me a break. You say, what? <laughs> right? You make kaza, salah. Why? For any reason? I just didn't feel like praying on time. Hmm? To be as good a subservient subordinate to Allah Ta'ala the way you want people who are your subordinates to be subservient to you. You getting some ideas? Hmm? I'll give you two examples. Now you can see. Right? Keep taking it further. Hmm? And we're not like that. So it's a very interesting way Imam Azad is advised. We don't do that. Hum apne ma tehto se I'm close to getting there that I can do these things in Urdu, inshallah. Hmm? There's an Urdu translation of this also. You can put that in front of you. Right? But I'm going to lose the four online people. Hmm? So, the first thing, take it and this is the first thing. And whatever would dissatisfy you for yourself on the part of this hypothetical subordinate of yours, it should also dissatisfy you that you shouldn't do that. But Allah He is actually your Malik. He is the real Malik and you are the real Abd. The real Malik of the relationship is between you and Allah Subhanahu It's not employer, employee. It's not Oh, man, household, staff, isn't that the real of the Malik relationship is between you and Allah Second, is that whenever you interact with people, deal with them as you would wish yourself to be dealt with. Centuries later in Victorian England, they came up with the golden rule, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Imam Azali is saying this centuries earlier. Alright? When you interact with people, deal with them as you would wish yourself to be dealt with by them. Right? If you are Parishan, running late for a meeting, and you drove fast, and you kind of cut somebody off, you don't really want them to chase you down and yell at you, because you are in a rush. So when somebody is in a rush and does that to you, don't chase them down and yell at them. Alright? The third thing to do is, 
Oh, sorry. And for worshippers, faith is incomplete until he wants for the people what he wants for himself. So this idea is something to be a something none of you has perfected their iman until he loves for their fellow believer what he loves for himself. Third, that if you read or study knowledge, you get any knowledge of deen or mabdeen, your knowledge must improve your heart and purify your nafs. Different. See, our concept of knowledge is for the mind. The Muslim says, no, 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 no. If you take it, you get in the mind the tool of knowledge. It's not the end of knowledge. It's like your mouth. Your mouth is where you get the food, but it's supposed to go to the stomach. Right? Your mind is just like your mouth. Your mind are the jaws of knowledge. You acquire knowledge. You consume knowledge through your mind. Like we consume food through our mouth. But the purpose of knowledge is it should have an effect on our heart, a positive, beneficial effect on our heart, and it should purify our nafs. So swallow your knowledge. That's what Imam Hadith is saying. Alright? Just as if you learned that your life would only last another week, then what would you do? Somebody, some, sometimes it happens, you go to the doctor's, oh, you got stage 5 cancer. We never knew, you got one week, right? So he's, now he's teasing the alam, look what he says. So what would you do? Would you spend it in learning? Huh? About sharia, akhlaq, usul al-fiqh, ilm al-kalam. No, you would, you'd forget all about this learning. What would you do? You would go to alam. You would look at your heart, you'd try to make yourself a better person, right? You'd forget all these worldly things. You just, you, you would think I've got one week. One week left to purge myself of my ugly traits, to occupy myself with worshipping and adoring Allah Taala, to finally once and for all get the good akhlaq and sifat inside myself. Right? So that's what you would do. So he says, know that not a single day or night passes for any abid except that death is a possibility. Not even a week later, he's saying it's a possibility that very moment. Har lamha may maut kan Every moment is imminent. Every moment death is imminent. Allah knows best. No one knows. Right? Okay? Every young man who died in a car accident, you think he knew he was going to die in a car accident? He thought he was coming home that night. Hmm? He's just like you. Hmm? I'm, when I taught Abdullah, there was some mom's kid who died in a car accident. I remember that now. He didn't know that. He thought he was going to graduate. Hmm? He didn't know. His parents didn't know. Alright? Any time, any and any moment, any and every moment, death can come on a person. No one knows. No one knows. So act like that. Act like you're ready. This is something Nabi Akhirin Sallallahu Alaihi But the sign of a believer is that they're prepared for death before death comes. They're ready. So angel death comes and yeah, I was ready for you. I don't think how many of us could say that. Huh? If the next 24 hours the angel of death visits you, you think you'll be able to tell him that? Assalamu alaikum, ahlan wa salam wa marhaba. I was ready. I've been ready and waiting for you. How? Because Muhammad Allah told me about you. And my Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu told you about you. And I said, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. I'm ready. <laughs> well, you think I didn't know you were coming? <laughs> huh? Oh, you are. Which one of us going to talk to Malakum out like that? Huh? Are you? you came now? <laughs> you came now? <laughs> You're not supposed to come now. <laughs> WHO, they told me 72 years life expectancy. Hmm? WHO. To be ready for death. This is Imam Ghazali advising. So, this was the third thing. Alright? Uh, now, uh, yes. 
Then before he goes to the last and final thing, which is the last and the final of the eight advices, which is he'd done four not to do, is in three to do, before he goes to the fourth to do, and the last thing he says, Ayuhal Walad or my dear beloved student, listen to another statement from me. And think about it. Think about it in order if you want to find your salvation. Alright? And he said, if you were notified that the ruler would be coming to visit you in a week's time. I know that during this period you'll be occupied with nothing but putting in order what you knew his glance would fall on. Whether he would look at your clothing, he would look at your person, he would look at your house, your room, your furnishings, and so on. Now think what it is I'm hinting at, for you are intelligent. A single word is enough for someone clever. Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam said, Allah Ta'ala will not look upon your forms. Allah is not going to look at your outward appearance and form, nor at the outward appearance of your deeds. Rather, Allah's gaze will be upon your heart and on your intentions. So if you want to prepare for Allah, prepare what He's going to look at, purify your heart and purify your intentions. Purify heart and purify intentions. So then he says that, okay, if you want to know what are the states of the heart, so he refers the student to look at Imam Zanayah's famous book, Ihya al-Muddin. He says, go read the Ihya. Go read Ihya al-Muddin and the other books that I've written. And in the other books I've written on this topic. Uh, Imam Zanayah several other books. Mukashaf al-Kulub is another work, Ihya al-Muddin is another work, etc., etc. He says, this knowledge uh, is an individual obligation. It's far than every person to learn how to purify their heart and intentions according to the teachings of Islam. Just like it's far than every person to learn the outward amal, outwardly how to pray salah, it's also far to learn how to purify one's heart and intentions. Right? Uh, while others uh, are a collective obligation, other, you know, other high-level things about tazkiyah and tasawuf isn't required in every individual. Accept the amount needed to fulfill one's own individual ob- obligations to Allah SWT and to perform them. And it is Allah SWT alone who will grant success in a person's acquiring this knowledge. And finally, the fourth thing, fourth thing, is you should not stock up more of the world's produce than is adequate for one year, as Nabiya Karim Sallallahu arranges is for one of his wives, saying that Allah Ta'ala make the sustenance of the family of Muhammad Sallallahu enough. And he used not to arrange this for all his wives, but he used to arrange it for the one in whose heart he was a weakness. As for whoever of his wives was confident, he used not to arrange more than one or half a day's sustenance for her. So what is this? This is what in today's English we call savings. Everybody divides their income between consumption and savings. So if a person asks the question, that how much am I allowed to save in Islam? Alright? So understand that in our deen, there are different levels. So one is what is permissible, second is what is preferable. Answer what is permissible is absolutely 100% halal and permissible according to every single scholar of Sharia that you can save as much as you want. Jais, you can save billions of dollars if you want, no problem. But in our deen it's not considered preferable, right? It's not preferable. So permissible you can save, you can hoard money your whole life. You can hoard so much money that your children will be wishing that you die so they get your inheritance. Less, it happens sometimes, I'm telling you. It's a very cruel reality. But I'm telling you, sometimes it has happened like that. It does. So if that's what you want to do, you can do it. But it's not preferable. 
right? The Mahabharata Mazali is talking at the level of what's preferable. So somebody asks the question, okay, I want to know what's preferable. How much is it okay for me to save? Right? So Imam Ghazali is taking a very, again, I'm telling you these are hardcore positions. Most of you aren't ready for this. I'm not suggesting to you that you're ready to practice at this level. Right? He took the position, okay, well, let's refer this question back to the Sunnah. So how much did Sayyidina Rasulullah himself save for his family? Now understand very clearly, when you're talking about these types of sunnas, you cannot imitate these sunnas until you have the other sunnas, until you have the same love for Allah Ta'ala like the Prophet had, unless you have the same tawakkal on Allah Ta'ala like the Bihakarim had, unless you've stayed away from love for the world like he has, it's only then that you reach this sunnah level, right? So us, we're not on that sunnah level, but still we must know what our, who and what our Prophet was. So the most that he allowed, and he has not taken the name, and I'm not going to share with you the name either, but there was one of the Umahatul Mu'mineen, who let's say was a little bit, relatively speaking, to her fellow, her fellows, a little bit more worried about worldly sustenance. So for her, Nabi Karim Sallallahu said, fine, what I will do is I will store up for you, he must have done some hisab of whatever the monthly expenses are, or yearly expense rather, and one year's expense, I will always keep that for you and save it. But let's say as an example, let's say somebody says my monthly expenses are three lakhs a month. I'm just picking a random number as an example. Alright? So I would say, okay, if, if you want to follow, and this is not, it's not necessary, it's not even sunnah in that sense, it's just completely optional to follow this. Right? So I would say, okay, then one year would be 36 lakhs, so basically, you are allowed, in, the, if you, in this preferable position, you could save up to 36 lakhs. So the question is, well, what if I have more than 36 lakhs? You give it away, you give it to the poor. Right? Now, this is the way Imam al-Ghazali was training the ulama. And this is our tradition in our deen, that the ulama are actually trained not to have a lot of money. Even if they may actually be rich, or they may have ways of making money, or they may have ways of earning money. They're actually trained like that. They're told that by their mashayikh who trained them. This, this not your life. You're not the person who's going to drive the Land Cruiser, and you're not the person who's going to have five plots in DHA, even if you may have that ability, right? Because it's just not the life you've chosen, right? So remember, in this case, is pertinent for you to remember he's talking to an alim, right? So this is the way Imam Zayn would train his alim students. Even Imam Zayn wouldn't train his non-alim students at this level. He would train his alim students that up to one year of savings you can have, and the rest you have to give it away and share it. Right? Taken. So, uh, that's it. Now Imam Zayn is done, and now he's just going to end with a dua, and we will just do that, and then we have to leave, because the Asr is at 445. I'll be coming back and I'll be sitting here from Asr to Maghrib so that now that we've finished the text, anybody who has any questions about the text and we can have an interaction, session and discussion on that for those who want to come back, that will be from Asr to Maghrib. So now that Imam Ghazali just ends, and I can just read this for very quickly, he says, Ayyuhu my dear beloved. Student, I have addressed the things you asked for in this discourse, and you must carry them out. This is what he's saying, this is what the Shaykh saying, you now you have to follow it. And do not forget me in this, and mention me in your devout supplications. You remember me in your pious du'as. As for the du'a you requested from me, look for it amongst the supplications and the collections of authentic traditions in the hadith, 
and recite this dua during all the moments you have, in particular after your uh, sujood in your nawafil salah. Now we don't know what exactly what dua he requests. We don't know what the question was. Uh, I don't know because we don't have access to that text. Allah maybe he asked him some dua that he can pray in his sajda. Maybe he asked him for dua which is on the Sayyidul Istighfar, his dua for example. The dua that Allah Ta'ala uh, has determined will grant you the most forgiveness. So Nabi Yaqeen mentioned this dua is called Sayyidul Istighfar. We don't know because we don't have answers to the question. right? And then he just generally makes dua uh, for his student and for himself. So Imam, this is the very last page of the text. So Imam Azhar he makes dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I beg thee in regard to grace. It's hard, if I do it in Arabic, you won't understand. The English is quite uh, archaic British English. Here, oh Allah, I beg thee in regard to grace for its completeness, in regard to protection for its permanence, in regard to mercy for its totality, in regard to well-being for its realization, in regard to livelihood for the most plentiful, in regard to life for the most happy, in regard to beneficence for the most perfect, in regard to favor for the most inclusive, in regard to generosity for the most sweet, and in regard to gentleness for the most intimate. Well, it means I ask you for the most intimate of gentleness, the most sweet of generosity, the most inclusive of favor, etc. Ya Allah, be for us and do never, never decide to be against us. Ya Allah, conclude our lives with happiness and make our hopes abundantly real. Unite our mornings and evenings in well-being and entrust our destiny and future state to thy mercy. Pour the vessel of thy forgiveness over our sins. Grant us the correction of our faults. Make God consciousness taqwa our provisions of and make our exertion to be for thy religion and our trust and our confidence to be in thee. O Allah, set us upon the path of righteousness. Protect us in the world from causes of regret on the day of resurrection. Lighten the weight of our sins. Endow us with the way of the life of the godly. Restrain us from and avert from us the evil of the wicked. And release our necks and the necks of our fathers, mothers, brothers and sisters from hellfire. By thy mercy, thou infinitely precious, thou ever forgiving, thou bountiful one, thou veiler of sin, thou omniscient and omnipotent. Alright, Ya Azizu, Ya Ghaffaru, Ya Kareemu, Ya Sattaru, Ya Alimu, Ya Jabbar. Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, be rahmatika Ya Rahman Rahimeen, wa Ya Awal Al-Awwaleen, wa Ya Akhir Al-Akhirin, wa Ya Dhal-Quwwat Al-Mateen, wa Ya Dafin Al-Masateen, wa Ya Arhaman Rahimeen, La Ilaha Illa Anta Subhanaka Inni Kuntu Min Al-Zalimeen, wa Sallallahu Ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa Alihi wa Sahbihi Ajma'een, wa Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. This is the end of Imam Ghazal's dua, the end of his text, and the end of our course. Wa'afirullah wa'ala, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah.